Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right. We brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book and casino. Now live in Ontario. The Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sports book experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Ontario only. Must be 19 years of age or older to participate. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. Greetings and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond and I'm joined as always by my co-host Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on, Wolfon? Free agency's died down a little bit, but uh, we're all just waiting for that shoe to drop. That size, what size is the Kate, uh, Kevin Durant's shoe? 18, I we think. We're all waiting for that size 18 shoe to drop, <laughs> preferably north of the border. We could be waiting a while. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I don't I don't know if this standoff is, well, uh, is going to end anytime soon. It seems uh, seems pretty frozen at the moment. But this is what we were talking about on the last episode uh, when we were talking about, you know, that that Woj report that I think happened maybe on Thursday or Friday where he said, you know, oh, it might take a few days because it's, you know, it's Kevin Durant and there are other teams can get involved in all this stuff. And we were both saying, it's like, well, shouldn't it take more than if like, what, what is the reason the Nets wouldn't just take all the time in the world with this, given the fact KD's got four years on his contract, they're all fully guaranteed, like he doesn't have much leverage. And it seems like that is what's, happening here based on how long it's taking because there was a report yesterday as well that they're like they're very prepared to wait this out as long as they need to until they get an offer that they think is sufficient for Kevin effing Durant even at 34 years old my question to that though is like what's changing between now and the start of the season to make these teams up their offers like all the big moves adjacent to that are pretty much done so you know, this isn't like the Sixers hanging on to Ben Simmons until the last possible moment and somehow being able to to flip him for James Harden because that situation went haywire at the right time for them. If they're not going to get it done now, I don't necessarily see the offers that are currently out there changing between now and the start of the season. And are they really willing to go into training camp with KD and Kyrie, who also seems to be you know, uh, in a holding pattern here. Like, are they willing to go into training camp with those guys still on the roster? I'm I'm kind of skeptical of that. The Kyrie thing, I agree with you because we know for a fact that he will sit out if he needs to or wants to or whatever. But KD, again, I'm not... I don't want to pretend I know what he's thinking, but he is one guy, like, I don't think either of us sees him holding out or even necessarily dogging it. Like, I think if he's there and he's playing, even if he's playing on a team that isn't his first choice anymore... I think he's going to play. He's going to be KD to the best of his abilities at that given time. And so if you're Brooklyn, maybe you are thinking like, maybe it's not even about, oh, the offers will get better. I'm sure they're hoping they will. But it could also be if the offers don't get better, then we'll just keep Kevin Durant and he will play for us. And then that'll give us a chance to be halfway decent at the absolute worst, if not better than that. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because like I th- the Nets could be really good. Right. That's like right. They- if if you look at their roster with Durant and Irving, they got Royce O'Neal, who I think, assuming that those guys are there, is like a really nice fit with that roster. 
signed TJ Warren, you know, taking a swing at a guy who obviously hasn't played in a couple of years, but last time we saw him play was really, really good. Brought back Mills, brought back Claxton. Could have Ben Simmons in a role that actually fits right. him where he doesn't have to be the... Like, no, it, it, that's what I'm saying. They, if they don't get an offer that they... Even if it's an offer that we think, hey, for 34-year-old Kevin Durant, you should take that and run. If they don't think that, if they think what Kevin Durant can still give them is worth more than what one of these packages can do for them when they owe all their picks to another team anyway, then if I were them, I'd keep him too. And just say, listen, here's the deal. Like, we're keeping you. We think we can still contend for a title. And that's the other thing too. If, say, they do start the season and Durant plays, because as we mentioned, we don't think he'll sit out. What if they get off to a great like if they look like a contender? I'm not I'm not sold that they will yet because it, it does seem like there's just too much kind of BS like going around there. But if they were, if from just the basketball stuff we talked about, they are a good team out of the gates and you know they're playing good, meaningful basketball. Kevin Durant, I think, will be pretty engaged throughout the season, right? So I mean, this could all be moot. Maybe they get the package they want in the next few like literally right after we record this and Kevin Durant's gone, but I completely understand where they're coming from, where if they don't get the offer that they think is worth Kevin Durant, even at this stage of his career, they should just keep him and try to win with him for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I just can't. I mean, I, I'm imagining that team showing up to training camp. <laughs> Kevin Durant, Kyrie who, has made it, Kyrie. who has made it known he wants to be elsewhere. Kyrie Irving, who has made it known he wants to be elsewhere. Ben Simmons, who b- between the back injury and the psychological hurdles that he has dealt with. I, I just like throwing Steve Nash into that situation and asking him to figure it out is uh, that's tough to imagine. But I, I think I, I go back to, you may remember this conversation we had when we were talking about the, the plausibility of the Blazers trading Dame Lillard. And I remember saying, it's so hard to imagine a trade like that happening because the Blazers would have to get back so much to feel okay about trading, you know, this superstar, this franchise icon with all this term left on his deal. And on the other side of that, I don't think any team is going to be willing to meet the kind of asking price that the Blazers would justifiably demand because what team around the league could pull that off without gutting their team to the point that they would just be in the same position that the Blazers were already in, where they have Dame, but they're not good enough to do anything with him. And I think that's similar to, to where we're at with this KD stalemate. Like, I just think what Brooklyn would need to feel okay about pulling the trigger on that deal is too much for most teams around the league to stomach. So yeah. I ultimately think it's going to come down to them just having to accept one of the offers that's already out there. Cause I, I don't know that waiting is necessarily going to change anything. My la- last thoughts on the matter for this episode are that, with the entire league in, or not the entire league, but most of the league in kind of a holding pattern, especially with some of the, the free agents, DeAndre Ayton is going to be like Huel at the end of Breaking Bad for anyone that, remember, like everyone's just going to be like, just well, lying, lying in a pile of money or? We're not lying in a pile of money, but in that waiting room that Walt had him waiting, like we're not, just no one knows what happened to him because he's just waiting for like Walt to come back or whatever. It's like DeAndre Ayton is just waiting for this to resolve itself. Everyone just forgets he exists. The season starts then. But uh, it, it, it that's a big like ripple effect, right? Like DeAndre Ayton, who had this Kevin Durant trade request not happen, pretty sure DeAndre Ayton's free agency would have been resolved in some form or fashion pretty quickly after June 30th because he was one of the top targets on the market, even as a restricted free agent. Whether it was a trade, a signing trade, him staying, like 
it would have been resolved by now, I imagine. Mm-hmm. And instead, it's like you, you've heard nothing about it because everyone's waiting for the KD true to drop because he's likely going to be involved in it one way or another. Well, there's nothing stop. I actually don't know which teams still have cap space. I feel like the Spurs still have max cap space, right? Yeah. What's stopping them from just signing him to an offer sheet today? Maybe they don't like him. I don't know. I, I, I mean, don't know. I don't know that. I'm just saying maybe they don't. I don't know because I, I agree with you. If not, if they were that interested in him, what would have stopped them? What are they that's what. To do? Yeah, like they, to, they. I don't think they'd be trying to do Phoenix a solid. Like, okay, well, wait, just in case you need to use him in a KD trade. Yeah, so that that's what's interesting to me. Like, one of these teams could. Well, what other teams have? I, I know the Pistons, Pistons don't have the space anymore. No I don't longer think. have max space. Do the Pacers? Yeah, the Pacers might. So, so there you go. Like, you know, what's what's stopping the Pacers from putting a max right. offer sheet in front of DeAndre? Right. Are they maybe hoping they'd rather be able to do it through a sign and trade? I don't know. Why? I don't if know. I get, don't. If they could I, get him without giving anything up, are you kidding? I'm just saying, yeah. if if they wanted to, wouldn't they have tried it already? Well, that's what I don't really understand. <laughs> like, <laughs> what reason do they have to wait? I understand why the Suns are waiting. Uh, yeah, having said that, Eaton would have to cooperate as well because even though he's restricted and the Suns could match, he would still have to sign the offer sheet. So it is possible. Maybe there has been interest shown by some of those teams and maybe for whatever reason, he's rebuffed. Like I, who knows? Yeah, I guess it's possible that he has one of those offers on the table, but yeah. I'm pretty well, sure that we that would... an offers on the table, but maybe like they've reached out and, and his, his reps have been like, no, he's not going to sign that. Don't bother. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, man. Maybe. Uh, okay. Anyway, let's let's move on from that because the, the purpose of this episode, as we sort of teed up on the last episode when we just talked about trades, is to break down some of the free agent signings that we liked and didn't like. So the, we don't have to have really a ton of structure to this. We can kind of just go back and forth. And I will say I don't really see a ton of moves that I'm like so down on or that I think are egregious. Like I think for the most part, every move to a certain extent has made a lot of sense. I made a list here and I think I had 10 moves that I objectively liked and five that I kind of unambiguously didn't like. And even those are like not, not franchise crippling moves, you know, by any means. Um, Except I do maybe think front offices have gone pretty, even like the the ones that are bad, maybe because the ownership is bad or whatever, the front offices themselves seem to be a lot brighter than they were years ago to the point where yet, even even deals where I'm like, why did they sign this guy? Why is this team maybe trying to jump the gun? The They don't come with these same just egregious levels that they used to say, even just a few years ago, Mozgov's deal at the strike of mm-hmm. midnight or something like that. You don't really see those kinds of deals anymore. And the ones that you do think are an overpay, they're like, I don't know, we can talk about Beal, for example. Like, they're not exactly uninspected. Like, we knew that was coming. Like, if the Wizards right. wanted to keep Beal, they were going to have to throw him max money. Like, we knew that. So there's not really any of those crazy, surprising overpays anymore where you're literally sitting there thinking, like, I could definitely have done a better job than that full-time <laughs> NBA GM. I, I don't think those exist anymore. I think even... Most of the overpays that you see are justifiable overpays, right. and I feel exactly. like we can get into maybe talking about some of those. But uh, I'll kick it to you to start us off. What's one move that you have really liked on the free agency front so far? So 
One move I liked, and it is one of the bigger money ones, but I really liked the Blazers keeping Anthony Simons for four years and a hundred million. And I don't know, maybe in in a way it flew under the radar because it wasn't a team, it wasn't a player changing teams, it wasn't one of the guys at the top and signing one of the huge max deals. But I think if people watched Simons this past season and especially down the stretch of the season, I get that the Blazers were very much out of the race. Dame was gone, CJ was gone. It was very much like Simons getting to. I don't know if experiment's the right word, but kind of getting to like throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks, right? For a bad team. I know he doesn't play a look at defense, but the scoring ability that he showed at 22 years old and the ability to score at that volume with incredible efficiency to me was super impressive. And it did indicate to me that there is an offensive star in there, like legitimate offensive star. And it's something that I've talked about for years. You know this, like when people kind of, shit on young players who feast offensively on bad teams and look at it as like, well, someone's going to score. Or like, I get that, but if he's doing it efficiently with very little help around him on a bad team, that's actually a like positive. That's a positive indicator because it's showing that he can produce efficient offense despite the fact that there isn't a lot of help around him. Maybe the spacing isn't like all these things. And if you put him in a better situation, he won't be the man, but it's just good indicators. And there there was a time where maybe four years, 100 mil, 25 mil a year for a guy like that would make you raise your eyebrows. I don't think now is that time when you look at the fact, like, I think the average salary is up to like almost 11 million. You know, when, when Brunson signed for whatever his ended up being. I think it was 4104. Right. I remember the, the someone had put out a great stat of like where he was now going to rank in the entire league. And I don't even think it was like in the top 30 in in yearly salary. So 25 mil a year is not what it used to be. And I think to get a 22, 23 year old who has shown the scoring ability that Simons has at his age is, is good. And again, I completely acknowledge that he doesn't play like a defense that probably will not change anytime. I don't think, you know, even if he does, I don't think he's ever going to be a stout defender by any means, but you know, if you look at when, when he became a full-time starter in January and in the absence of Lillard and obviously the trade in McCollum, he averaged 23.4 points and 5.8 assists while shooting 42% from deep on 10 three-point attempts per game and shot 50% inside the arc, 87% from the free throw line. Like, he's good, man. For the season, he was at 58% true shooting, less than 20% of his field goals this season were assisted. He self-created more than 80% of his made buckets. Like, I really like this for Portland, man. And I think it kind of goes under, like I said, I think it flew under the radar somewhat, just like his season did among some bigger deals and and maybe bigger deals or better deals on better teams for other guys. But hmm. I, I think Portland's got a keeper in Anthony Simons. Yeah, I wouldn't say this was a move that I like unambiguously liked. I think it was a necessary one. They had to retain him, obviously. I don't necessarily think it's good or bad. I think it's probably fine value. I'm just curious to see if or how they can make it work defensively or if they just sort of run into the same problems that they had with the Lillard McCollum backcourt. And that point you make about the self-created offense is interesting because obviously he played so much of the season without Dame. And if that's going to be the starting backcourt, that's going to have to change, right? Like you don't want him creating 80% of his own field goals. If he's playing next to Dame Lillard, like he's going to have to work more off of the ball and play off of Dame and not necessarily be the the kind of one-on-one self creator that he was last season for them to really maximize that pairing. And they're going to have to maximize that pairing at the offensive end. 
because it's going to give a lot back defensively. So one, I think it was, oh, go ahead. No, one thing I'd add is that I think part of the reason I like it too, is that I think he, once he's eligible also becomes a really juicy trade chip, because I think mm-hmm. having a guy that young with all the scoring potential I mentioned on a contract now that is considered a long-term contract for at worst fair market value, I think does become a very juicy trade chip. So I like this for them because I think it could complement Lillard on a competitive team, but if he doesn't, I think he emerges as a juicy trade chip or if, you know, the things go haywire and Dame ends up out, I think he helps not be the guy, but I helps lead them into a post Lillard future. So I think he could fit in a, like a lot of different ways, depending on where Portland wants to go. And that's why I like this deal too. Uh, Okay. Well, I'll just stay on the Blazers then because one of my favorite moves was them getting Gary Payton the second three years, 28 million with a player option on year three. That's a really good fit for them. Like I think they, they obviously needed the perimeter defense. They'd already shored up the wing by getting Jeremy Grant. And I think now they really shore up the point of attack with GP two, like getting Grant, who's a maybe slightly above average defender overall and gives them like some really necessary weak side rim protection. That's one thing. GP two is like one of the five best perimeter defenders in the league. You know, it's in a different class. And we talked on the last episode, you know, regarding the DeJounte Murray thing in Atlanta about how difficult it can be for perimeter defenders and specifically guys who kind of like specialize in on ball defense to have a huge impact on overall team D and you know look that's that's still true to an extent but I think with GP2 it's a little bit different because he is so good at both roles like he is so good on the ball but also as a helper you know providing the nail defense or playing the passing lanes like all that stuff that he's going to have to do at such a high level to insulate Dame and or Simons like he he could find himself in lineups where he's on the floor with both of them and he's gonna have to put out a lot of fires on the first line of defense you know whether he's locking down opposing guards as an on-ball guy or just being the disruptive helper that we know he can be uh, I I think that's a, a really good and important addition for the Blazers and then you look at the offensive side and I feel like he's coming into a situation where he can play a very similar offensive role to the one that he played in Golden State. I think the Blazers don't have quite the same level of playmaking as the Warriors. They don't play with the same kind of tempo, and both of those things were very conducive to Peyton succeeding on offense. But with Lillard and Simons, they have the kind of on-ball creators who can allow Peyton to do what he does as a, you know, like a rover, right? A guy who is going to slip into pockets of space as a cutter, you know, along the baseline as a, a guy in the dunker spot who's going to get up for lobs. And more than anything, I think as a screener and like a short roll scorer and playmaker, like they're going to have him, I feel like playing the other end of pick and rolls with those guys a lot. And I, I think in that sense, he can work just as well in Portland as he did in Golden State. Yeah, I think it was part of what we kind of teased on the last episode was for a Blazers team that right now is still committed to building around Dame, if their objective is to build as competitive a team around Dame as they possibly can right now, given the asset limitations that they had, I think they had a tremendous offseason so far. And so kudos to them. The one thing I, I'll kind of use that to segue is I'll just quickly talk about the Warriors then striking to try, somewhat try to replace Gary Payne by signing Dante DiVincenzo for two years and $9.3 million. <clears throat> I believe was the deal. Look, I don't think, especially 
coming off that really bad ankle injury he had in the 21 playoffs where he never really looked like himself when he finally got back on the court last year, ended up in Sacramento. But even if he can't fully replace what Peyton brought to the Warriors, I think he's a pretty damn fine consolation prize and good potential reclamation project, especially at that price. The guy, you know, like Gary Payton, as recently as what, a year and a half ago, was considered and was one of the premier perimeter defenders in the game. And so if they can get Dante DiVincenzo even close to what he was before that ankle injury as a defender, as somewhat of an underrated shooter as well, I think he <clears throat> he was like a 37% before the injury. I think even if you look at his last three years combined, he's 36% on a few three-point attempts per game. Like there's some three and D pop there that, we're not talking about a guy who's older and did this like five years ago. It was like about a year ago, he was this guy. And, you know, I'm not going to pretend to know whether the ankle injury is fully healed or whether it's going to hinder him. But I would imagine, given the amount of time that's happened now, also given the way he started to look towards the end in Sacramento there, that he will work his way back to that player. And if the Warriors get that player for a two-year, $9.3 million contract, I think that's the best they could have hoped for if they were looking for a guy to somewhat replace Gary Payton specifically. I think they did a really fine job there. Yeah, but they still should have just re-signed Gary, Gary Payton the second. Yeah, fair. After all this talk about, oh, you... Yeah. And it was stupid, to be clear, but all this talk about, well, you don't have to just beat the Warriors, you have to beat Joe Lacob's checkbook too. Like, yeah. All these other owners grousing about the Warriors' spending advantages. For them to then not meet that price for Gary Payton II, who was a massive contributor to the championship they just won. Like, yeah, DiVincenzo is a pretty good replacement, but I would rather just have GP2, and they could have brought him back. All it would have cost them was money. All right, let let me use that as a opportunity to segue again to three guys, but real quickly, three guys... Because I want to start with Looney in Golden. They did retain Kevon Looney for three yep. years, $25 million, and the third year isn't even fully guaranteed. Bargain price for them. I don't know yeah. why Kevon What's Looney What's with Looney continue? His last year with the Warriors was like selling himself short right. too. Like so what, this, he's I wrote about his agent, man. I know. I wrote about this in our whatever it was, day one or day two recap of free agency, our analysis on it, where I was like, okay, if you, if you just look at – he's this like just super fundamentally sound – big man who gives you value on both ends with the things he does and it's like either a rival teams for some reason are not seeing or valuing this which i would find hard to believe given what we just talked about you know with like front offices getting brighter and stuff or he's just super comfortable with you know the comforts of home and the comforts of home also being you know perennially contending and i don't know maybe he's just look i love my life in the bay area Mm -hmm. still making millions of dollars a year i'm competing for like if he's cool with that, because that's another thing too, right? Maybe his agent is telling him, hey man, go here. Or like this team will give you more. And maybe Looney is saying, no, no. Like, you know, if they if the Warriors just meet this number, I'm fine. I'll stay. We, we don't know what those conversations are. But I, I find it hard to believe that he, they're like his agent is, you know, being negligent or that these other teams around the league are refusing to pay up for his services given what he's contributed to the Warriors and, and the player he's become, quite frankly. So... I did want to use the the Peyton talk and them not paying him to segue to that. And then I also just wanted to use that to segue to a couple guys. Nick Claxton, two years, 20 million to stay in Brooklyn. And then one, I know you probably want to talk about too, Malik Monk, only two years, 19 million to go to Sacramento. The Claxton one, when you look at what some other bigs around the league signed for in those first couple of days, I definitely think Claxton could have and should have 
got more than 10 million a year for only two years. And then Monk, Malik Monk only getting an average, like nine and a half million, literally less than the average salary now in the NBA. Didn't even get the full mid-level exception and took what seems like a discount to go to Sacramento. Like if he had taken a discount to go, I don't know, like to a great team, I think people maybe would have had it make sense. But to take a discount to go to Sacramento, again, I guess it just goes back to what I was saying. For whatever reason, he wanted to be in Sacramento and it, it financially, it does seem like a shame because I thought Malik Monk had played himself into a much better contract than that and yeah. in a, into a much better situation than that. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe he just really wanted to stay in California and that was the yeah. best deal he could get from a California yeah. team. Like sure. we know the Lakers were hamstrung because they didn't have his bird rights. Yeah. So all they could have given him was the taxpayer mid-level and the, the Warriors, I guess, the same thing, right? So if he wanted to stay in Cali, <laughs> like Sacramento no. is basically his only option. I guess he could have gone to the Clippers, but they're no, they're in the tax too. So yeah, they he, the, the the most they could have offered was the taxpayer mid level, which is only six and a half per year, and they were going to use that on John Wall anyway. Right, right, right. So I think all three of the other California teams right. only had the taxpayer MLE to offer. So maybe it was just he was dead set on staying in California, and that only left him with Sacramento as an option if he wanted to get more than the tax MLE. I I think he ought to have been able to get full mid-level money somewhere else yeah. but and you it's think not for three or four years too yeah maybe maybe not i think it seems to me like the the league at large just doesn't seem to value monk all that highly because yeah. like think back to last season right he had his qualifying offer pulled by the hornets right after he had had kind of a mini breakout with them where he shot you know 40 percent from three on high volume and started to showcase a lot of the on-ball dynamism that got him picked 11th overall they pulled his qualifying offer. He signed with the Lakers on a minimum deal and then had a season in which he shot 57% from two-point range, including 67% at the rim, shot 39% from three on almost six attempts per game, showed that he could play on or off the ball and work either end of the pick and roll, get downhill and get to the rim pretty consistently, You know, score, kind of score at all three levels. The mid-range is still a bit iffy. But he's got a decent enough floater package, I feel like, that there's still some in-between craft there. So, you know, call him a two-and-a-half level scorer. I, I just think it's interesting that, like you say, no team was willing to go, or or maybe they were and he just wanted to be in Sacramento. But yeah. uh, four either years way... Maybe, yeah, sorry. Four years may be a stretch, but I thought like three years between 30 to 35 mil. Yeah. So either way, I think this is a win for the Kings. And I think I'm I'm curious to see, you know, you mentioned on the last episode... Uh, with them trading for Kevin Herter also and them kind of going all in on offense. I think they're going to be a really good offensive team. And I think Monk's going to be part of that. Like, I think he, as a sort of connector between De'Aaron Fox and DeMontis Sabonis, you know, like somebody who, if they want to play up-tempo, which I think they're going to, like, I think they're going to play really fast. And that is a style that suits him. Like, he's a really good transition player. He's quick. Uh, he can stop on a dime and shoot. He, like I said, can play on or off the ball. and. I think that that makes him an interesting fit between those two guys. Obviously, at the defensive end, that's where the questions are going to come. Like he he's really struggled as a point of attack defender, and maybe that explains the dampened value here. Like he just gets blown by far too easily, far too often, and I wouldn't say he exactly makes up for it with super alert help rotations. So. I do think he, he's going to be a pretty seamless offensive fit. Uh, 
next to Fox, that backcourt pairing might be too flammable at the defensive end for them to actually play big minutes together. And so I wonder, like, are they going to start him or are they going to bring him off the bench? And if they do bring him off the bench, are they maybe going to try and pair him up with Davion Mitchell more than they pair him up with Fox? Because I just, or maybe this is just the season that De'Aaron Fox decides to give a shit about defense. I mean, that would be great to see because he definitely has the physical tools to do it. Just, you know, the, the effort and the willingness has not been there at all. So maybe he can, you know, he recognizes an opportunity. The Kings can actually be like a play-in team or a low-rung play, a playoff team, and that's enough to get him to commit at that end. But apart from that, yeah, I just, I, I think this team's going to be really bad defensively, and they're going to have to score a ton in order to finally end that centuries-long playoff drought. If the Kings finish 29th in defensive rating, Davion Mitchell should win Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, <laughs> okay, so if you actually start to think about this rotation, Fox, Herter, Monk, Barnes, mm-hmm. Sabonis, Holmes, Mitchell, that's enough talent, even though they're, they're nowhere near good enough defensively to actually be good. Like I'm talking, you know, they, they're, their ceiling might be around 500 because of how bad they are defensively. But there is enough, just strictly looking at talent, there's enough there. They should be able to compete for a play-in spot deep into the year. I don't think they will actually get one, but like they should not be out of the race in January. No. And if they are, send this franchise to the moon. <laughs> I think, you know, as as that one Kings fan triumphantly declared in that video making the rounds on Twitter, we're winning 40 games this year. <laughs> hey, I feel like that's a realistic expectation. You know what? If they win 40 games... In an improved West next year, a healthier West, you'd imagine. Maybe that doesn't even get them up. But it if they're flirting with 40 wins, they're going to be in the race pretty much until the last night of the season. Yeah. And if you're a Sacramento Kings fan, you have to be happy with that. Or maybe you don't because you'd rather a better pick. But I don't know. Your franchise wouldn't have done anything with that pick anyway. So I'm not going to shit on Kings fans for being excited about watching a team that should play meaningful basketball in some way until April. No, uh, not at all. And I actually think this is going to be one of the more fun teams in the yeah. league to watch. Like I mentioned, I think they're going to play really, really fast. There'll be some high-scoring games for certain. So I'm excited to watch them, whether they're good or not. Like they're going to be, I think, one of my league pass teams this year. So I like Monk to Sacramento. Uh, can, can I take us to one of the sort of justifiable overpays that Go I Go for it, because I went, I segued to like four guys. So please do. So to me... The most justifiable overpay of free agency so far was PJ Tucker to Philadelphia. Okay. Three years, 33 million. That's full mid-level money. And by the way, that's fully locked in, fully guaranteed 33 million for a 37-year-old role player. Who, <laughs> like, listen, has, as much as I love PJ, he's become a complete zero on the offense. <laughs> like he, the, the age has started to show. Yeah, I actually don't think that's quite true. I think this past season was his best offensive season and like his most versatile offensive season where the Heat found different ways to use him. He wasn't just spotting up in the corner. They were using him as a role man in the pick and roll a lot and he was actually pretty effective. You know, found this floater game that we hadn't really seen from him before. I uh, was making some short roll passes, was active as a cutter and then also shot like 42% from three. Yeah, the so, corner threes are legit. 
Yeah. And then, you know, obviously we know he can play off of James Harden. I guess the question is playing off of James Harden and then also having Embiid there as the natural pick and roll screener. Is that going to then relegate him once again to just spot up duty, which doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing if he continues to shoot, you know, 42 plus percent from the corners. But uh, I guess might negate some of the value that we saw from him at the offensive end in Miami. But I think regardless, you look at it and on its face, 33 million guaranteed for a 37 year old role player is an overpay. There's no way around it. But I think that it makes sense as an overpay for Philly because he addresses a lot of questions and a lot of needs for them. Like he is still this rugged as hell defender. And you think about the kind of padding that they need both on the perimeter and on the interior, because they were a surprisingly poor rebounding team last year. We know they had some struggles as a point of attack defense. And I think PJ, despite his age can still play out on the perimeter, you know, can still guard the power wings of the world. Uh, And then if you need him to to slide up and guard fours and fives and box out and help your team's rebounding, he's going to be able to do that too. So I like his fit from that perspective. I'm thinking about the idea of Thibel becoming expendable. And, you know, by all accounts, he's on the table. Like the Sixers have been dangling him. And whether it's just because Daryl Morey is driving a, a hard bargain or because there just isn't a ton of interest around him around the league, like he remains on the Sixers. But if they are ultimately going to move him, I feel like you can feel a lot better about doing that, knowing that you have Tucker there to... You know, he's not going to have the kind of Thibel role where he's guarding ones and twos, but that's what you go and get DeAnthony Melton for, right? So they get Melton, they sign Tucker, and now I feel like they can feel relatively okay about trading Thibel just because of the offensive limitations and feel like you actually, you know, have managed to patch up the defense to an adequate degree. And then I think about the Sixers' annual struggles, to figure out what to do when Joel Embiid is on the bench. We've never really seen small ball Mm -hmm. work as an option for them in those Embiid-less minutes. Like, it didn't ever really work with Ben Simmons at the five. It really didn't work with George Niang at the five. But with PJ, it can work. Like, PJ at the five can work. So maybe that is their answer to the age-old question of how do you survive with Embiid on the bench? So for, for all those reasons, I would say... Yes, there's going to be some pain, I think, on the back end of this contract, but they're trying to win a championship right now. And I think from that perspective, it's worth it to suffer through that pain on the back end for what they can get in terms of his value on on the front end of this contract. I actually agree with that. And so I definitely overreacted in saying he's a complete zero on the offensive end. What I do think, though, and I think you kind of hinted at it, is that a lot of the stuff he was starting to show on the offensive end, I think was aided by the system he was in in Miami, which is very different offensively than the system he'll be in in Philly because of Harden and Embiid. And yes, there has been success with him playing off of Harden. And look, if Harden can get even a a semblance of his old kind of North-South game going and collapse the defense the way he can, P.J. Tucker, even with, if you go by like the bare minimum he can give you offensively, will get some open corner threes and he's going to make teams pay for them. So even if he is like the almost non, like the almost zero on offense, I see him potentially being, 
he'll still contribute in ways because Harden will yeah. find them. And he, but, he's much but, less of an offensive zero than Thibel is, for instance. Right, exactly. So zero, I, I will agree. I went a little overboard saying zero, but I do think the offense is going to look a lot more limited again, like it did his last season in, there in Milwaukee when he won the, when he won the title there. Mm. Then it did in Miami. I think that system also helped make his offense look a little more dynamic than it actually is. But even all that said, and even though I do think this could look like an overpay as soon as a year from now, I also think when you're in the situation the Sixers are in, you are 100% going for it. You are trying to win a title right now, immediately. No ifs, ands, or buts. That's why you traded for James Harden. That's why you're about to give him a huge contract. I have no complaints with this because if you win a title or if if you put your best foot forward in trying to win a title and you give the league a serious run as one of the teams who comes very close to winning a title, then it's all justifiable. And so, yeah, do I think P.J. Tucker is going to be worth on court what he's being paid off the court a year from now, two years from now? No. But do I think he makes them better right now and just boosted their odds of potentially winning a championship when they're in all-in mode? Absolutely. And for those reasons, I think it's, to your point, a worthy overpay. Right. And it's also like, what what else were they going to do with the mid-level? You know, like, were they going to do better than PJ Tucker in terms of a guy who fits what they need? Like, I don't think so. No. And and then also, it's like, you you will remember after PJ Tucker's heat dispatched the Sixers in the playoffs last year, Joel Embiid, you know, up on the dais saying, we need to get tougher. Like, we need tougher players. And they don't make them much tougher than PJ Tucker. So I feel like that ought to make Embiid pretty happy. And... I think the Sixers are going to be good next year, man. Like they will be right back in that title hunt. And if you're a championship contender, you want a guy like PJ Tucker on your team. He's a dog. And uh, as friend of the show, Trill, our favorite Sixers fan and podcaster knows uh, the Sixers needed at least a dog (laughs) to join this team. All right. I'll take us to uh, Bruce Brown, who two years, $13 million for a guy that, fits the Nuggets and Jokic so perfectly. Like, I I couldn't have dreamed up a better situation for both Bruce Brown and the Nuggets. A guy that is so smart about how he does his offensive work off the ball and with cuts and where to be on the court, playing with a guy who is in the conversation for having the best vision and finding cutters and knowing where everyone else is on the court when he's got the ball in his hands. Like, I think the offensive chemistry between... Nikola Jokic and Bruce Brown is going to be fantastic. And I think offensively, again, we're talking about, you know, individually a very limited offensive player, but one that I think whose offensive value is going to be maximized in Denver in ways it would only be maximized in a few spots. And then I think defensively gives them some versatility too on a team that that needs it. So I think just an absolute perfect fit for a team like the Sixers, you know, who is very much not quite at the same level of win now because they're a lot younger, but still in win now mode, a team that if they're healthy, I think can win a championship or at least compete for one. And I think they found a guy on a pretty good deal that is going to help them boost those odds and just fits them so perfectly and fits their franchise star so perfectly. Yeah, it's really similar to me to the Blazers deal for GP2. And and I think GP2 is a better player, which is why he got paid more, but... In terms of the the resources the Nuggets had available to them, uh, like this was a great use of the taxpayer MLE. Obviously, they made that move to get Contavious Caldwell Pope, which was a move that in totality I didn't love. I, I think KCP fits there great, but I, I didn't really like them giving up Monty Morris to get that done. But 
taking these moves together, it's clear they're placing a priority on improving the point of attack defense, which is very necessary. Like that's been a huge issue for them in the playoffs. And Jokic has kind of borne the brunt of the blame. And that's not totally unwarranted, but I think more of that blame should have fallen on the perimeter defense, which has been consistently poor for the Nuggets in the playoffs. So I think adding KCP and Bruce Brown is really going to help shore that up. And then to your point about, you know, how he fits offensively, I do think we're going to see a ton of inverted pick and roll with him and Jokic in the same way that he did in Brooklyn, like, and in the same way Gary Payton did in Golden State, you're going to have the 6'4 guy acting as a role man a lot. And Bruce Brown has a great floater, like he's actually a pretty solid pick and roll finisher, who is also, you know, good enough with the ball in his hands, like he can make reads, he can put the ball on the floor a little bit. He has the guard skills to make that work in a way that you would hope to get from any role man of any size. So I think, you know, he, he can definitely fit there offensively enough that he's going to be able to stay on the floor and let his defense play up and help the Nuggets in the way that they need help. I think the Nuggets hit a home run for like as as big of as much as a two year thirteen million dollar deal for a role player can be a home run. I think the Nuggets have hit a home run here. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to take us over to the Knicks, where yep. obviously the deal that everyone's going to want to talk about is Jalen Brunson, and I'm I think it's fine. Like I, I think it, he's a good player. They needed a point guard. They he was like the closest thing they've had to a long term answer at that position for you know I don't know at least two decades. But instead, let's talk about the most underrated big man in the league. Yeah, I honestly, I think, again, I like the Brunson deal for them. But in terms of just like what's an unambiguous win for them, like I, I would honestly lean more towards getting Hartenstein for two years, 16 million. He had such a good season last year on a per minute basis, was one of the most productive centers in the league. And I think if you think about who's been playing center for the Knicks, over the last few years, there has been such a like a, a glaring lack of skill. Sorry, I shouldn't say skill because it's like there are there are a number of different ways to be skilled as a basketball player. And I don't want to say that like you know Mitchell Robinson isn't skilled or that Nerlens Noel isn't skilled, but from an offensive perspective, guys who can catch the ball on the move and make a play, whether it's a pass, making a move, putting the ball on the floor when there is somebody between them and the basket. And I just feel like Isaiah Hartenstein gives them that. Like he gives them a skill component at the center position that they haven't had. Like he, he's a good finisher. Like he has the push shot down. He can really pass on the move. And I just think that's going to help lubricate their offense in a way that they really could use. Like they, their offense has just so often ground down in the last couple of years. It's been pretty ugly to watch. And I, I like the fit there with him and his ability to be more of a connector in a way that guys like Robinson and Noel and even Taj Gibson haven't been in the last couple of years. You take that and then, you know, you, you look at what he is capable of defensively, where he was literally, in terms of defensive field goal percentage allowed at the rim, was the best rim protector in the league last season. Uh, holding opponents to 47.5% shooting in the restricted area. And it's like, you get the stuff that you weren't getting with your other centers without compromising the interior defense. It's been a really big component of, to the extent that you could say the Knicks have been successful the last couple of years, like that's been the biggest driver of it is their interior defense. So he doesn't compromise that. But then again, he gives them that offensive skill set where he shot 52% from floater range last season. 
averaged 4.7 assists per 36 minutes for two years, 16 million home run. Agreed. And I got to say, listen, even the Mitchell Robinson contract four years, 60, I think was an overpay, but I'd, I'd still do get it from their perspective. And what I want to say is that when you consider Mitchell Robinson at 15 million a year and Hartenstein at eight, I think in the modern era among NBA centers, being able to fill your center minutes with either of Mitchell Robinson or Hartenstein for a total of $23 million a year is actually pretty good business. Like, even if the Robinson deal seems a little much, I don't really have any bones to pick with how the Knicks have gone about their offseason, which sounds absolutely batshit crazy on the surface. But between Brunson, Hartenstein, which, like I said, I think he was the most underrated big man in the league last year. And even with Robinson, like, I think it was better to have Robinson back than to lose him. And even, I mean, we joked about it off air, that just incredible stat that Mitchell Robinson becomes the first Knicks draft pick to sign a second contract with the Knicks since Charlie Ward 28 years ago. Like, I'm not saying that should have been the only reason they signed him, but I do think there is some value in like a homegrown guy that you drafted that, you know, maybe the the ascent of how good he's been has, hasn't been as quickly as someone, but I, don't, I think he's a pretty solid big man, super efficient inside, good rim. But like, I think they've had a good off season. And then yeah, getting Hartenstein, combining him with Robinson, I think their center rotation, it's not star level, but I think it's very good and at very good value too. So I, I don't have anything to complain about with the Knicks so far in the off season. And it has been a long time since I've been able to say that. That might be the craziest stat in the NBA. Like Dude, to go 28, 28 years. years. I mean, I can't even, how is that even possible? Anyway, so yeah, I also thought that that contract was a bit of an overpay. I, Robinson's fine. Like he, he still has a lot of, I think, untapped defensive upside. Obviously he's a tremendous shot blocker, but he hasn't fully excised like the jumpy tendencies right. where he's just trying to block everything and that leaves him out of position and leaves the defensive glass naked a lot of the time. Like any fouls a ton still like he's not as good a defender as he could be but in spite of all that like j just in terms of the physical tools like he, he is obviously plenty capable at that end of the floor and then he's super low usage on offense but i like the idea of having a different look yes. where you can go to hartenstein who can be that kind of connective playmaker or you can go to robinson who is just that pogo stick of an above the rim finisher and I think in either case, the fact that you have the rim protection down pat makes it, you know, pretty viable. Again, and 48 minutes of competent center play at a total of $23 million per year actually is pretty good value. And mm -hmm. even like Robinson getting 460 for the player he is right now, his age, the player he could be, wouldn't have really made me raise an eyebrow. It's more so because of the deals that were being signed around that same time, like in those first couple of days of free agency, when we were seeing some bit, whether it was, and I'm not saying he's necessarily better works than these guys, but like whether it was Claxton for 220 or Looney 325, I think it was because I was seeing some of these deals, other centers who I thought are good or promising were signing and thinking, okay, like the market for centers is down. That's what I made the Robinson deal seem like more of an overpay than I actually think it is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's still going to be a question offensively in terms of how they work out the spacing because either one of them playing next to Randall in the front court and then also having RJ Barrett on the floor is just, there's not going to be a ton of breathing room for that offense. And then, you know, you have Brunson stepping into that situation after 
playing in a lot of four and five out lineups in Dallas. And he might be in for a bit of a rude awakening, but uh, I'm curious to see how they can sort all that out. Um, okay. I have a couple more here. Let's try and get to them quickly because we're already going pretty deep here without even getting to some of the deals we don't like. Uh, I really liked the Wolves getting Kyle Anderson for two years, 18 million. I love his fit there. Uh, this preceded the Gobert trade, but even in conjunction with that Gobert trade, especially with Vanderbilt going out, having Anderson as like a Vanderbilt replacement essentially is, I think that's just perfect because he's maybe not quite at the level Vanderbilt's at defensively, isn't quite the same level of athlete, isn't going to do the same kind of work on the offensive glass, but you no longer really need him to. You have now Rudy Gobert who can do that work on the offensive glass. And in terms of offensive skill, there's absolutely no comparison. Because of Vanderbilt's lack of offensive skill, the Wolves basically either just had to have him in the dunker spot or like spotting up in the corner going completely ignored. Whereas Kyle Anderson is going to be much more involved in their offense. Like he's a guy who can be a connector at the top of the floor. He's going to be a ball handler. Like I think we're going to see some funky slow-mo cat pick and rolls. I think he's going to be a more seamless fit in certain ways because he can keep their offense humming and do a lot of the same things on defense, especially as a team defender. Like I wouldn't call slow-mo an elite on-ball defender, but he's pretty elite as a helper. And I think, you know, whether, whether they're going to continue playing the type of like high wire, hyper aggressive defensive scheme they played last year, now that they have Gobert in the mix, I guess is an open question. I feel like they probably won't, but it just in terms of like the defensive versatility and the option to play that style, like you want guys like slow-mo who can help you navigate those rotations. And he does that as well as almost anybody. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll let you cook here if you want to give our second, I'll quickly add in, but I talked about it on the last episode. The wolves also getting Bryn forms on a one year minimum. I thought was really underrated, but excellent. The defense is going to be a concern and maybe he gets, you know, excised from the rotation by the time the playoffs come. But Getting a shooter of that quality on a minimum deal for a team that is desperately going to need some spacing and shooting now, I think was fantastic. I mentioned the stat on the last one, the 83 players that have made at least 600 threes over the last uh, five or six years. He's second in percentage. Like Between volume and efficiency when it comes to three-point shooting over the last half decade, you're looking at one of the five to ten best shooters in the league. So for them to get him on a minimum, given what they need, I thought was tremendous, even if he doesn't play much in the playoffs. Right. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I do still like the big question that I still have about the Wolves, who, as we talked about last episode, I think are going to be really good. The lack of shooting outside a cat is 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 a worry for sure. And and like, yeah, it's nice to get a guy like Forbes who can help with that. But you you run into these issues, especially in the playoffs of can you actually afford to play him? So I think they still might need, you know, Ant possibly to just like make a leap as a shooter uh, because Delo's like basically average as a three point shooter and Jaden McDaniels, like they, they need him to be better than he was last season. Slow-mo's not spacing the floor. Like they could run into some issues at that end if they don't get some internal development on the shooting front. Um, the last guy, uh, it will surprise no one to hear that. I, I really like the deal for Tyus Jones going back to Memphis, two years, $30 million dollars. It's pretty much a perfect compromise for for player and team. I've, I've said before, I think he's the best backup point guard in the league. 
he was super important to the Grizzlies' success last year, especially the times when John Morant was out. Like, he stepped into the starting lineup and just kept them rolling. Like, they didn't miss a beat. And that led me to believe that some team was probably going to pay him to make him their starter. But the teams that were conceivably going to do that, like, you know, Detroit, Washington, they kind of found other options. And that sort of left only teams that were going to be able to offer the mid-level to sign him and, and make him a backup. And so I think the Grizzlies being willing to go, you know, significantly above mid-level money to keep him around in what will be more of a hybrid role where he is coming off the bench, but will still play with Morant a fair amount. And just like he did last year, slot into the starting lineup when Ja is hurt is just perfect. And it's a short-term deal that will allow him to re-enter the market and maybe cash in in 2024. And I just think it became that much more important for them to re-sign him given that they traded Melton and lost Kyle Anderson in free agency where suddenly there's like a real lack of playmaking off the bench if they don't bring Tyus back and they they absolutely needed to do that they couldn't afford to get cute and I think you know 15 million a year for two years is like the the perfect compromise unless you had anything to add to that um, no the, the only thing I'll add just if we're going to talk about things I like it's maybe more it's closer to indifferent than like, but I will say given how much I've shat on them and we all have shat on them and understandably so. And maybe it was more so just like they didn't have many other options. I do think the Lakers just taking a flyer on some of these, like whether it was Lonnie Walker um, or even like Juan Toscano Anderson, Damian Jones, Troy Brown Jr. If even like one or maybe two of these guys cracks their regular rotation, I think these were like worthy. Well, Lonnie Walker should, but I think these were worthy kind of bets on younger guys, which is in very stark contrast to what the Lakers have done the last few offseasons. Again, a lot of this is because they didn't have any other options because of the hole they had dug themselves from an asset and a financial perspective. But I do still want to give some credit there for them taking a flyer on some of these young guys who I think in the case of Walker and maybe even JTA can help them. So, you know, for a team that at least thinks it's still going to be competing for a title, I do think taking a flyer on some of those youngsters, one or two of which I think can actually help them, could mean something. If they can actually flip Russell Westbrook into Kyrie Irving, then yeah, they might be a right championship contender. Yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm a little bit less convinced. Like I Walker has always been more of like a theoretical, yeah, interesting prospect than an actual one just because he hasn't he's a ridiculous athlete, but uh especially defensively, I just feel like there's been almost no progress. So so I don't know. And and especially for a Lakers team that really needs help at the defensive end more than anything. JTA I'm not sure if that's going to work, but yeah, yeah, I like JTA actually. That's that's a really good fit there. And Damian Jones as a backup center is definitely yep. a worthwhile guy to sign. So pretty low risk moves there yeah. that have the potential to work out reasonably well. Uh, okay, let's take a quick break and we will finish this off with the deals we did not like. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Like I said off the top, th- there were not really that many deals that I kind of thought were just out and out bad. But there were a few that I definitely was fairly down on. 
and, and I'll say also, we haven't really talked and we're not going to talk about all the extensions and re-signings that I feel like for the most part were 100% the right and necessary moves with one exception that we can maybe talk about. Uh, Bradley but, Hill? Yes. All right, um, let's talk about it. Okay, but so like, yeah, apart from that, like Jokic, Booker, Towns, Levine, Morant, Garland, Zion, all of them either re-signed with their teams for the max or extended with their teams for the max. And I thought, yeah, just 100% necessary and correct for their teams to do that. Bradley Beal, five years, 251 million. It's not even so much about them signing him to this deal, which once they held on to him last season became pretty much an inevitability and their only move. It's just, they shouldn't have let it come to this in the first place. And, you know, when I talked off the top about, well, there weren't really any moves that are like franchise crippling. I feel like this might be the exception to that. Not them signing him to this deal, but them opting not to trade him a year ago or two years ago when they really could have maximized the return and kickstarted an earnest rebuild rather than signing a like fringe top 25 player to a $50 million a year deal that is going to now be extremely difficult to move. And if they do manage to trade him at some point, they're not going to be able to maximize the return. And more than likely, they're just going to have him for the life of this contract and continue to be, at best, a middling team. You know, I can look at what the Wizards did the rest of the offseason and say, I liked a lot of the moves they made. You know, I liked them getting Monty Morris. I, I liked them signing DeLon Wright. I just don't see where this goes other than, you know, they just missed the playoffs or they're a play-in team. And they continue to draft, you know, like 12th to 15th overall and just stay on the hamster wheel of mediocrity until the end of time. So that's that's where I'm at with that. Like I just, it's a crazy amount of money for a guy who is coming off a down year. And I don't think even at his best, you know, Beal's great. He's really, really good. But we, we haven't seen him defend at a high level in like five years now. Yep. And even as an offensive player, he's a really good mid-range shooter. He can play with or without the ball. Like there's obviously a ton of skill there, but as a lead guard is the playmaking, you know, good enough for him to do that. You know, is he scoring efficiently enough to do that? Like it's just, if you are as poor as he has been defensively, I feel like you need to be way better than he is offensively in order to justify being, you know, the number one for a a bankable playoff team and, and to be making $50 million a year. Well, in the years since, like in the post-John Wall era, if you look at the seasons in which Bradley Beal has been undoubtedly Washington's best player or franchise player, it's four years. Their best season during that time, pro-rated, is essentially a 38-win team. Bradley Beal, as the best player on his team, has never been better than a 38-win team. Now, you could defend him by saying, well, that's more the Wizards not being a good organization than Beal. Well, guess what? He just committed to that organization for another half decade. So I'm not going to let him off the hook there. Like whether it, it's a combination of his limitations, his indifference defensively, a bunch of stuff, plus the organization not knowing how to build. And now they're stuck with each other, if we're going to be honest, because Bradley Beal being one of the you know most exciting trade chips in the league was because of the term left on his deal, the player he was for sure, where he was in his career. 
Bradley Beal making an average of $50 million a year at this stage of his career and going forward is no longer that trade chip. So between the Wizards not really being able to move him for the, at least for the whole they once would have been able to move him, for Bradley Beal being in a situation where it's going to be harder for him to get to where he wants to get to if, well, Washington's clear where he wants to be right now. But if he were to want to leave later, like, I think this is just basketball wise. I think it's bad for both parties. Now I'm not going to say it's bad for Bradley Beal because he just secured to a quarter billion dollars to add to his career earnings, which by the way, by the end of this contract will be roughly $430 million for a guy who as the best player on his team has never even been 500. And I'm not even hating on him for that. I'm saying good for you, Bradley Beal, get your money. But Aside from the financial perspective, like basketball wise, I think it's bad for both sides, but I also think they're now stuck together. And if they're happy in mediocrity from a basketball perspective, I guess good for them. Yeah. That, I mean, it's a, it's a shame because my- I think otherwise, like Tommy Shepard has done a really good job since taking over that front office. Like all of his other moves, I feel like have been pretty smart, justifiable and have worked out fairly well. I just think this one thing, the, the inability to, and I get that it's a tough decision. You know, he is the face of the franchise and that fan base hasn't had a ton to cheer about. But I just think that decision, the decision to hang on to him and then max him out is the one that is going to kind of undo all the other smart moves he's made along the margins. And I just think it's going to be pretty damaging for the Wizards long term. Um, all right. Allow me to segue once again perfectly and seamlessly then because we're talking about Brad Beal and I'll talk about another deal I didn't like. And that was John Wall with to the Clippers. Hmm. And I know this was like one of the league's worst kept secrets once he secured the buyout from Houston that he was going to end up in the Clippers. There's no surprise. It's 6.5. It's the taxpayer mid-level exception. John Wall essentially gets made whole because that's how much he also gave up in the, the last year of the, you know, the buyout with the Rockets. Man... <sighs> I guess you could look at it as like it's low risk on one end and there's high upside if John Wall's anything close. But John Wall, okay, yes, you could say the, you know, in 2020, 2021, before the heel and Achilles and knee injury, whatever it was, in 40 games, he averaged about 21 points and seven assists. Guess what? He also was woefully inefficient on the offensive end, is no longer anywhere near the perimeter defender he once was. The Clippers had so few things they could do financially and cap-wise, that the taxpayer mid-level exception was literally their best, biggest and best tool to use right now. For them to use it on John Wall, given where he is in his career, I don't think was a good piece of business. A guy that relied on speed and explosiveness to fuel him has appeared in just 113 games over the last five years due to Achilles heel and knee injuries. By the time the season starts, it will have been 18 months since his last taste of NBA action. Like, I guess you can look at it and say, best case scenario, Wall stays moderately healthy and, you know, provides a contending team with some ball handling pop and dynamism off the bench. But like, since when can we say best case scenario with John Wall in recent history? I I think the more likely scenario is that a cap strapped Clippers team that needed to be wise in using one of the few financial tools it had at its disposal gets nothing of value out of this agreement while John Wall still fancies himself a star. So I didn't like this move for them at all. Pretty strong disagree for me there. Like I I didn't like it enough to put it in the category of moves that I liked, but I think it's low risk enough and has enough of a chance to pay off 
I'm totally fine with it. Like, what what are they going to ask him to do, really? Like, you say, when has the best case scenario worked out for John Wall in recent memory? Well, when has he been in a situation like this before where he's on a contending team where he's not going to be asked to do an awful lot? Like, they might bring him off the bench. I don't know that they're going to oh, play I'm assuming him they will. I'm not, they're not going to play him more than, like, 20 minutes a game, I don't think. But in those minutes, like he gives them a, a passing element that they don't have. Like he's now the best passer on this team. Yeah. And that's something that I feel like the team can use. He's going to be insulated defensively by, you know, an army of long defensively capable wings. And look, you, you mentioned the explosiveness. I get it. He's maybe not the athlete that he was, but he still to me probably has more like straight line drive ability and just overall North South juice than anybody else on the Clippers and having a guy who can get two feet in the paint, who can drive and kick to spray it out to all of these three point shooters are going to be dotting the arc for the Clippers, especially like if they're playing him in five out lineups and he kind of has the space to, to drive and get to the rim uh, and make the, like, you know, finish at the rim or make those kick out passes. I don't know. I think it's kind of a good fit for him and a low risk environment and a low pressure environment for him where they don't need him to do much more than, you know, set the table for the shooters around him and then give a modicum of effort, you know, on defense and and survive at that end. I think it's, it might not work out, but I don't think they're going to be kicking themselves saying, how did we, how do we give six and a half million a year to John Wall? I think they'll be feeling like it was a worthwhile swing. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. So I'm definitely not as down on it as you are. Um, and in terms of like, like, okay, what, what's like another move that you would have liked to, Oh, no, you the list of free agents. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm sure we could go through and find other guys that we felt like would f- have fit there better, but none that I would look at and be like, oh, this is the guy they should have targeted. Like, this would have been a way better use of the taxpayer MLE. Uh, I'm not there. But I will then segue us to a taxpayer MLE deal that I didn't like with a team that I definitely felt like could have made better use of that money. And that is Joe Ingles to the Bucks. Mainly because as a 34-year-old coming off an ACL tear, I don't know when he's going to play again. Like he, he suffered that at the end of January. So even in a best case scenario, that's probably when he's coming back this coming season. Like end of January, start of February. And then we just have to see if a 34-year-old coming off an ACL surgery has enough juice left in the tank to be a contributor for a, a team that has championship aspirations. And a guy who we already saw trending downward before suffering that injury last season, especially at the defensive end of the floor. And I get that it's an upside play because Ingles has really important skills that should theoretically age well, you know, namely his shooting, his passing, and just his overall feel for the game. Like he is a really crafty and smart player. And he actually might be Milwaukee's best pure passer now. Yeah. So I understand that as an upside play and as a fit play, but that's it's just assuming a lot in terms of Ingles making a full recovery and actually being able to contribute to them come playoff time because he's going to miss a huge chunk of the regular season. And I just don't know if he's going to be good enough defensively to stay on the floor in the playoffs. And I, it's just like too big a risk to justify using that tax MLE on him, I think, when there were a lot of different directions they could have gone with that. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'll keep us moving along here. A team 
nowhere close to the Bucks or Clippers in terms of contention. Um, and maybe, a, a, again, one of those signings that maybe goes under the radar because people don't care about it. I thought the Pistons overpaid to retain Marvin Bagley. Agreed. Three years, $37 million. Like, he, he was better in Detroit once he got there from Sacramento, and he cut down on his jumpers. He did more of his work inside once he got to Detroit. He had smarter shot selection, and because of that, uh, his efficiency went up, his scoring went up, but it, you know he also got more playing time, higher usage. That's not going to be there as the Pistons get better. And even if you did think he did enough to convince you he's getting better, he's committed, you want to retain him, I just didn't think they needed to give him three years, $37 million. Again, given some of the big men that were going for cheaper around those same days, and if they were going to give him that much per year, I don't understand why they had to give him a three-year fully guaranteed $37 million. It just doesn't make sense to me on a lot of levels. For a Pistons team, again, that you can say on one hand, you know, they're young, they're rebuilding, they're just keeping a guy that they think can they can build with. But given the guys that they now have in place as they build and go forward, I'm not really sure, like, Bagley's even going to get the touches or the opportunity. Like, it's just a weird situation for me all around. And I'm not so, so down on them keeping him. I'm down on the contract and definitely down on giving him fully guaranteed for three years. Yeah, I don't know who they were bidding against. Right. They felt like they had to go to that number. Uh, and especially because, you know, they just drafted Duran, who they're clearly super high on. You know, there are reports that they were potentially willing to take him at number five if Ivy yeah. hadn't fallen to them there. And they have Isaiah Stewart. Like, where, where exactly does Bagley fit into all that? You know, I'm not entirely sure. And I... Uh, Again, I just don't know like who they were bidding against that they felt like they needed to go yeah. all the way to that number. I only have one more here, and th- this is a, an example of a move that like is is just all about the context and not at all about the contract. Like I think the the figure was pretty reasonable, but I just don't really understand the situation and like why this was the team that felt they needed to give that contract out, and that's Dallas. Uh, signing JaVale McGee for three years, 20 million with a player option on year three. And for Dallas, they, they kind of found the best version of themselves in the playoffs by going five out and being switchier on defense, you know, with Maxi Kleba playing big minutes at center. And, you know, I, I do still think there's room for a lob catching rim running center in their offense and like a rim protecting drop big in their defense. Like, they don't need to do away with that entirely but like first of all they already added christian wood in a trade they still have dwight powell on the team on a contract that's going to be hard for them to deal and then you know they have kleba who is pretty clearly their best two-way big so where does mcgee fit into that you know i I know who by the way expects to start yes so like in that situation, I think it's like, okay, we, we want to have this rim running, rim protecting element. We don't think Dwight Powell is good enough to actually fill that role. I, I get that, you know, JaVale was probably the, the best option for them to fill that role, you know, and, and this was the price point they had to go to to get him. I just feel like, you know, they just lost their secondary ball handler. Like, I, I probably would have preferred to see them try and address that shortcoming than to add another big man when now now they have this front court log jam on their hands and this kind of back court deficiency. And I, I feel like that's, I, I don't know how they address that issue. You know, maybe they can work out a sign and trade with Colin Sexton or something like that. But 
yeah, I didn't really get why why McGee was the guy that they decided to target. Uh, me neither. Uh, don't know why they targeted a guy like McGee where they needed to give him a, a you know more than one year and eventually give him a third option year. That's his. Mm-hmm. He's thirty four. Like he's I know, not a dude, young so player. Th- this has continued to work out perfectly. Where it segues between what you were going on and then what I want to talk about because my last one of the things I didn't like wasn't going to be a contract sign. It was going to be a contract not signed. It was going to be the Mavs losing Jalen Brunson. And I talked a few episodes ago, if you remember, about all the reports and then how they kind of botched this. Now you can, hindsight is obviously 2020, but with them not giving him the deal he wanted a year ago, them still balking at it when he was still willing to go for below market money, I think as recently as January. And then when the Mavs finally came to him and were willing to do that at that point, he rightly said, no, no, I'll wait till free agency now. So they botched this majorly. Them, I was as high on them getting Christian Wood going into a contract year as maybe anyone was. I wrote a feature about it. I did a video about it on the Scores YouTube page. So much of that changes when they lose Brunson because between Doncic and Wood, I think that offensive fit is so beautiful. I've talked about that in a recent episode. I think everything kind of slotted into place better between Brunson and Hardaway, the secondary creation, everything is elevated. Them losing Brunson, they are very much, in my opinion, back to where they were, where it's like too much on Luka. They need more ball handling. They need a secondary scorer, creator, whatever. It's it's a problem again. And then you look at it and it's like, because McGee is on a multi-year deal now, and don't forget, Wood's also a free agent uh, after this one year. Luka Doncic, Tim Hardaway Jr., Davis Bertans, Dorian Finney-Smith, Reggie Bullock, Josh Green, and now JaVale McGee are the guys under contract beyond this coming season, okay? Those guys alone already get you to $111 million committed next summer. So even with the rising cap, you're looking at maybe 15 mil of cap space, which isn't bad, but it's like they're not going to have anything near max cap space, okay, to do anything significant. Plus, if Wood does have the year I think he's going to have for them, they're probably going to want to retain him. I'm not confident he'll be who I think he'll be in a contract year beyond that. But anyway, if they end up retaining him, then all the cap space is gone based on everything they've done. Like I, I think losing Brunson really not just hurts them going like this year in them trying to compete. I think it's going to have a potentially seismic effect going forward and a ripple effect in the years to come. So we've talked about the deals we didn't like that were signed. The Mavs not re-signing Jalen Brunson is one of the things so far in the offseason, I disliked the most. Yeah, agreed on all of that. I'm, I mean, they're, Dow's going to have to find some way to salvage this Yeah, after losing Brunson for nothing. I mean, that's just, that's just devastating for them. I think we can leave that there. I did just want to mention before we end this episode, because we haven't talked about him so far, and it's obviously a player that I think we expected to be talking about in this free agency period, and that's Miles Bridges, who has been charged with felony domestic violence. His wife, Michelle Johnson, posted on Instagram about it. I'm not going to go into the specifics because I know that could be triggering for a lot of our listeners. Uh, If you are curious, if you don't know about it, like you can search it on the internet and you can find it. Like it's horrific. And I think the the reporting is that the Hornets have pulled his qualifying offer I don't know if that's been confirmed or if like that's something the team would even officially confirm that they'd done. But I guess I would just say like that's a team decision. And so theoretically, you know, that makes them a UFA that another team could come in and sign. And my hope would be, 
I know the NBA's approach to this kind of thing, and they have to deal with the players' union on that front as well, like has been, well, we have to let the legal process play out. But like we've seen in other sports, you know, like MLB, for instance, and I cannot believe that I'm using MLB as like some kind of moral benchmark here, but like they have conducted their own internal investigations and levied their own punishments. Usually they've been insufficient, but they have at least taken that step to have like league-wide suspensions for players who have violated their domestic abuse policy. And my hope would be that the NBA takes that step as well so that we don't have a situation where... Yeah. I mean, I would hope obviously that... Bridges like a lot of money because the legal situation play... Agreed, yeah. That's my only take on that. And I just... Like we've talked about this when we've, you know, we've brought up like Derek Rose and Jason Kidd on this podcast before. And I always say like, I, I'm not, like I believe people can change and deserve second chances. I also think like there are certain things that are kind of unforgivable. And some of the Miles Bridges stuff, if you've read about it, really does approach unforgivable territory. And I think regardless, like if that is going to happen, like if he is going to play in the NBA again, there needs to be like some public acknowledgement, like a show of penance and of growth, uh, you know, as opposed to just like the silence on the matter. And like, I know the, like part of it, like it gets tied up in like settlements and non-disclosure yeah. agreements and things that make it impossible to talk about in public. But like, I just hope that it's not the kind of thing that gets swept under the rug or like forgotten about with time. And then eventually he just reappears in the league. And, you know, turned into some kind of redemption arc the way that it happened with Derrick Rose, you know, who was acquitted and seen posing for pictures with his jurors after that trial. Like, I just hope that that doesn't happen in this situation and that if Miles Bridges does play in the NBA again, it's because like, I don't actually know what that would look like, but I would hope that at least some of that work has been done toward, uh, you know, an acknowledgement of, of what he has done and a commitment to improving himself and in addition to that to your point i hope it would also come after some an nba investigation that leads to him again to your point like i don't know what that would look like whatever the work is that would need to be done that puts him in a position where people think he should give get another nba opportunity if that happens sometime in the future it should come after an nba investigated an nba levied punishment that does keep him out of the league for a certain amount of time regardless of what the legal result is when it comes to a settlement that he could, you know, if it ends up with a civil settlement and mm-hmm. there's no jail or whatever, and people look at it as like, well, that's all taken care of. He can play in the NBA now eventually. Okay. But the NBA needs to step in and do their own investigation and levy a punishment that keeps him out of the league for a certain amount of time because of his actions, regardless of what happens with the legal settlement. Yeah. So sorry to end the pod on that dour note, but uh, I didn't want to just avoid talking about it altogether. So uh, with that, uh, I will kick it over to you, Cash, for a fan shout out before we sign off here. Yeah, real quick one this week. I just want to shout out someone that I I don't think we actually have shouted out in the past, despite the fact he interacts with us, uh, uh, you know, on an episode to episode basis fairly often. And that's, uh, I was going to go, he goes by Z. Uh, at the real King Z on Twitter out in Calgary, Alberta. So Z, I just want to let you know, uh, we do notice you're you're interacting quite often and, you know, replying to us saying you can't wait to listen to the next episode and things like that. So did want to give you the shout out there. Also want to mention too, I mean, I know we went super long today, but I think it was warranted to get through all the free agency signings or re-signings and stuff that we wanted to talk about. 
it, it depending on what happens with the KD situation or you know the Aiton situation, things like that. Obviously, we are very willing and able and excited to talk about it on another episode this week, or who knows, maybe multiple more episodes this week, depending on what happens. I'd also say, in terms of you know our listeners waiting for the next episode, it will be very news dependent at this point, as opposed to during the season when we're twice a week or when you can expect it. You know, if if nothing else happens this week, probably won't be back this week. Could be back two more times this week. Maybe Durant happens next week. And we're, so I'd say it's very news dependent at this point. And, you know, if news isn't happening, we'll try to find things to talk about. But for the most part, I think our presence from here on out uh, on a podcast basis will be very news specific. Yes, exactly. And then, you know, once once all of the kind of offseason transactions have been taken care of, then... I think we're probably really going to scale down, uh, you know, and we'll we'll be doing one episode a week in some cases, but also we'll be taking some time off and uh, enjoying the offseason for what it is. But for now, uh, we're still waiting with bated breath to see what other transactions unfold this offseason. So with that, we are going to put a bow on this. Uh, for Joseph Cacharo, I am Joe Wolfon. We'll talk to you all soon down the road. <laughs>